Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. Thank you for that um, devotional, Daniel. Can't lay my eyes on you. There you are. Sometimes a short, direct message says more than a long, wordy message does. It was clear to the point and challenging. I want to welcome everyone this part of service and welcome the visitors. Good to see you here. And we're rejoicing with you, Caleb, and your family. <laughs> that, um, I don't know, I didn't hear much about the black threads or the uh, golden threads. I guess that was a theme on the Wednesday evening. That is true. Although, as I thought of it, if you have a piece of cloth that has golden threads intertwined with black threads, you actually can get a very beautiful garment <clears throat> with the contrast and the design and the beauty. So maybe that's what God is doing in our lives. <laughs> so this morning... It's the third of a series of messages that I had started on salvation. And uh, I had the first two parts of the message were the three states of mankind. And we went through that. And the last one was about the uh, spiritual man. And I said at the last message at the end that I will probably expound a little bit more on some of the outworking of the spiritual state as well as the abuses of this reality. And someone might well say, well, how can you abuse a walk with God? How can you abuse a spiritual reality of a walk with God? Well, we as people can. <laughs> and I thought of you children... You love school, and some of you like history. Some of you. <laughs> we'll have some history this morning, too. We'll have some church history this morning, so uh, I don't know if you'll be counting it as school, but uh, for those of you who like history, maybe you can enjoy it. Maybe those who don't like history, you can endure it, but I'd encourage you to listen. Of course, that's for all of us. So my title this morning is Salvation, Pietist and Practical. <laughs> Pietist and Practical. How can you misuse a walk in the Spirit? When we were out in the meetings in Indiana at the ministers' meetings, the Kingdom Weekend, that was, there was some discussion uh, on a certain topic that I don't remember anymore which topic it was, but there was a response given that the definition of heresy is truth out of balance, out of proportion from other truths, 
And so that is actually the definition of heresy. It's not untruth. It is truth out of balance. And if we as people are reactionary beings, if it is true that we are 90% reactionary and 10% thinking, (laughs) then we are susceptible to heresy. Let's say that. That's why we need each other. That is why the Pharisee, who is just as focused on separation and law-keeping, missed it so badly. It is the same reason why a missionary so focused on the loss can be so far off also. Both ways. One is not better than the other if it's heresy or if it's truth out of proportion. Truth out of balance is the reason why we have easy believism, eternal security, Calvinism, and a host of other beliefs. Because there are elements of truth in each of those isms. There are large elements of truth in each one of those isms. But the issue is that it's either pushed to a position beyond truth or it's a truth held in isolation with other truths and the end result is error. To illustrate this, I'd like to read a poem written by Carol Norman Scott in the spring of 1985. She wrote this poem after an encounter with a loving prayer group that tended to believe in the name and claim it belief, and she had an autistic son. It's a little bit of a hard poem to read, but I will try to read it, and it's fairly lengthy, but I think we can get some of it. And the title is called Balanced Doctrine, of all things, by a lady, right? Some say, I hear the poem, some say there is no need for suffering in this world today, God is not glorified through sickness. He wants you well, they say. They say Jesus is victorious. Satan's bound. We're free in you. Your stripes have healed forever. We only claim it. It is true. I believe it, Lord, and yet I wrestle one great truth you've shown me sore, that just as Jesus lived it, what air will glorify you more? It was not your plan that we should suffer, but as Job you oft allow a length of pain, yes, even suffering, to bring about your goodness somehow. Lord, they are right. You are the victor over death, there's no doubt. But somehow they seem to limit you giving Satan undue clout. Through my days and years of learning, you show me you're in control. Days and years of truly trusting, faith grows deeper in my soul. For as my eyes would see it, nothing is impossible for you. Things on earth that seem to conquer, you reign over those things too. 
For the victory lies in praising through the trials, not them removed, giving loved ones to you gladly. Sure, you'll bring about your good. Lord, if we remove that step off at the start and say, I will be free, we may sometimes keep from happening all that your plan meant to be. We know somehow we could somehow thwart exactly what place you on. I'm sorry. We could somehow thwart exactly what might place you on your throne. Thus cut short the total glory of others knowing what we've known. You know the needs of each our loved ones. Know them right down to their core. Will this bring them to salvation? Christ's lordship claimed forevermore. For Jesus talked of trials and sorrows here on earth that we must bear, but gave us hope of total glory, his death and resurrection share. He said he'd never leave us lonely, not like orphans in the storm, but his Holy Spirit's comfort would always serve to spur us on. When he comes back and Satan in the lake of fire is doomed, then will the earth, as its beginning, be free from every form of gloom. For now, he is our hope, our bodies grown for rest and peace. When he comes with his kingdom glorious, all earth will shout at sin's release. That's written by Carol Scott after an encounter in on her way home from this loving prayer group that was emphasizing, overemphasizing a certain truth. And, of course, it was focused on her son, which was a special needs child. And this is what she said. They had no idea how I had trusted the Lord about our autistic son, Ben, and how I had turned him over to the Lord and had seen the Lord do mighty things through his affliction. They said that Ben would be healed by the amount of my faith and that God would not be glorified through rages. Apparently they had some issues with him. I prayed all the way home and heard the Lord say, Carol, you have trusted me and have faith. Don't just... You just don't remember. I do, and I will use Ben to glorify myself. This is an example of how scriptures can be taken to an extreme. Certain verses lined up, and somehow the rationale and things sound right, because when you view certain verses in line, you can make a a package that sounds good. And and it's especially so when when they're lined up in a way that you like to hear. And in fact, I suppose, as I think of the Gnostics back in the back in the early days of Christianity, they claimed some kind of an extra revelation that some of these teachings can actually feel like they You can feel elevated above the normal Christian who's just groveling, but you are up here. 
You have knowledge and power and experiences that the normal person does not have. God has made a way for you to soar like eagle's wings, right? And since there are elements of truth there, people make a transition from the spiritual promises of God to make the transition into the physical realm and they they make a transition. And then they ignore other scriptures and circumstantial evidence. And the whole system is propagated as the true faith when it's in fact it is heresy. And this heresy has destroyed thousands if not millions of people. This heresy right here. Second Timothy 2.15 Familiar verse. Study to shoot ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, in context of what I just read, that word, that verse, all of a sudden really means something. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Study the word of God. Be a workman in the word. And so... If Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and he took the liberty to magnify his office, and because I'm a doctrinal kind of teaching person, may I magnify my office this morning? (laughs) When we hear, when we are inspired by truths of scripture, or experiences that we may have had, or hear a teacher give some exciting truths and revelations of scripture before we embrace it and make it our own make it we need to consider other perspectives sometimes like Carol Scott did we can't go by just how it makes you feel when you get it I mean, I enjoy getting nuggets of truth from Scripture. And I enjoy getting nuggets of truth from my experiences. And I enjoy getting nuggets of truth from inspiring people in my life. I do. But it does need to be tempered with the Word of God and a study in His Word. So when I said in the last message... I might expound more on the outworking of the spiritual state as well as the abuses of this reality. reality. That's where i like to go this morning. How can you misuse a walk in the spirit? There are actually many ways. Many, many ways. Which people have and are. The scripture contains categorical statements. Categorical means absolute statements. It means they are not conditional. He says, like, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Categorical statement. 
That's a true statement. That's a true reality. That is God's will. And that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And an emphasis, a good emphasis can be given, needs to be given, that it is our privilege to walk in the spirit of God. And if we do that, That is basically all we need. That can be an emphasis that is can be given. But that emphasis can be and is emphasized to the exclusion of other scriptures directly and indirectly. Now, to illustrate this, I'm going to go into history. A movement in history that did this very thing. I can't give all the, uh, it would be a, it's an interesting study in history about the, uh, this movement. And I don't, can't go in nearly all the areas I would like to. We'll have to narrow it down to get specific points out for sake of time this morning. But in 17th century Protestant Europe, imagine yourself there. I'm trying to imagine, that was a good lesson this morning about that rope, trying to imagine Imagine yourself now in 1600s in New York, and you are sitting in a Lutheran congregation church, state church in Lutheran, or you could be in a Calvinistic congregation, which is either in Geneva or scattered in different parts of New York that had Calvinistic areas, that state churches, and you, I think most of you understand the church-state structure, so I won't explain it, but it basically means all the people in a given geographical area belong to the same church. They were all baptized as babies. And so baptism was like a birth certificate. You, uh, when you were born, you were become a, a part of this country. And then you were baptized and became a part of this church. And they were the same. They were together. Now, in these areas the errors of Catholicism had been thrown off by the Reformation. And it had been thrown off for several generations by this time. The famous classical creeds that are still around today had been developed and hammered out by these theologians and these learned men and these schools of thought. They had hammered out the creeds. The catechisms were developed and taught and, and given. And they were strictly adhered to. There was a lot of training went into training the pastors and the ministers of these churches. They were educated, most of them, way above the laity. And so you could go to one of these churches on a Sunday morning and you could get a good oratory, doctrinal, correct well, correct in their, inside their creeds, <laughs> we would have some issues with their perspective. But you could go there and the minister could preach a good message, doctrinally correct, with good oratory, because they were trained. 
And it was really important what you believed. But the people, like most of them, went to church and they came home and they were unchanged. They were going through the motions. Many of them probably weren't Christians. Some of them were. To most people, what they heard in church was religious-sounding rhetoric that had no impact on their lives. The church religious experience was dead. Dead, dead for masses of the people. And so they lived their normal, ungodly lives as if they never went to church. In this environment, a young man grew up named Philip Spiner. Does that name ring a bell? I think I have the name right. (laughs) Philip Spiner, and apparently he experienced God in a personal way, and he had a burden. He had a burden. What can we do to bring spiritual life in our churches? A right burden. And he wrote a book. The title of the book was in German, but it translated into English. The English translation of the title is this. Pietist Desires. Heartfelt Desire for Godly Reform. Did you get the word Pietist Desires? That is where the name Pietist came from. (laughs) That's where it was basically coined. From this book birthed what we call the Pietist Movement. It was a very needed revival movement. Why? Because the church was dead. The preaching, you know, and this was the reformers. This is the, this is the reformers. Um, in other words, the Catholic Church, they gave the grace out to the people through the Mass. If you partook of the Mass, you received grace from God. That was their thinking. That's how people get grace. They eat and drink the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. The reformers said, no, it's the word of God. You give the word of God to the people, and that will change them. Well, the word of God does change people, but not automatically. So, it was a dead situation. So, Philip proposed six reforms that he see as needful In the established state churches, six changes that he thought would bring about a real spiritual renewal in his environment. So here's part of history, children. This is an old book written at 1650, and it has six points in it. And I'm just going to give a one-point nutshell of each point, because each point is a chapter. You can't can't go that far. So I'm going to give one-point nutshell for each chapter. And they may sound familiar to you. Because we today are still influenced by the pietistic movement that began in 1650, believe it or not. Movements have long-standing, long-standing, I mean there's other movements and it isn't all, only that, but movements have long-standing consequences, not the word I'm looking for, um, ramifications, I guess. Uh, consequences sounds like a bad thing. It's a good thing, generally. 
Because, and the reason we have, because in time, the Mennonite church became as dead as what the Protestant churches were. Just as dead. More so, maybe. I don't know what that can be. Because, instead of being baptized as a baby, you were baptized as an adult. But when you were baptized, your life didn't change. Your perspective didn't change. You could get a grade A in a Mennonite system, a grade A in a Mennonite system, and be totally lost, and even be ungodly. So they were needed revival. And uh, some of that came through down to us today. So the same renewal movement eventually found its way into Mennonite churches. Anyhow, I said I would have six points here. Here is the six points that Philip proposed in a nutshell that would breathe life into dead churches. Okay? Number one, outside of Sunday, outside of Sunday morning church, Church people meet in small groups to study the Bible and pray together. Outside of the Sunday morning service. Get people to get together in little groups to study the Bible and pray. That'll bring renewal, won't it? Number two point. The priesthood of believers. All Christians should be involved in the Lord's work, not just the career ministry. Doing the Lord's work was not the exclusive claim of the ministry. It was for all the people, every Christian. Number three, the knowledge of Christianity must be accompanied by the practice of it with the help of accountability. It's amazing when I read this. If you're serious with your walk with God, you need other mentors in your life and whom you're accountable to. And not just your minister. The concept of brotherhood there. Number four. Instead of harsh doctrinal attacks or persecution to those whom you disagree with, the truth should be presented kindly and firmly showing their doctrinal error while demonstrating a love for their souls. Of course, in that era, there was real persecution by the churches, and that was one of the things he challenged. Number five, godliness and character of the minister or pastor needs to have precedent over his training and his oratory skills. Now, we think that's a given. That was not a given. And maybe still isn't in many circles today. Number six. Preaching should not consist of polished, polished oratory or intri- intricate theological dissertations. Preaching should not consist of polished oratory or intricate theological dissertations, but rather should present the truth plainly and in a powerful way that is aimed to edify the soul of the hearer. And you can tell the difference, emphasis on the soul, not the mind. What do you think? Are you a pietist? I think 
I'm in agreement, I think, with all of them. Philip intended to reform the existing churches and to integrate and infiltrate the churches with this reform of heart. He had a vision that the churches would be reformed. A new reformation in his mind was needed. A reformation from the mind to the heart. What do you think happened? Any idea? When you try to reform a national church like this. Anybody want to guess? Resistance. <laughs> With few exceptions, it was rejected. And then, but a lot of people read the books and it, the movement spread. And the pietists tended to go one of two ways. I mean, we're, we're broadly categorizing because there's always categories that are all over the place, but we're broadly categorizing the pietists went two ways. One was the churchly pietist. Churchly pietist. Remember that, children. That's your part of your, uh, you need to remember that in your test. Churchly pietism says you need to respect the church's authority and you may only do what the church will allow you to do. You may desire to do a lot. You may pray that God will allow you to do more. But you will never do more than your structure allows you to do. And so you stay within the structure and try to continue to reform. Loyalty to the church is a virtue. Separation from the church is a vice. What is the basic flaw of that premise? Anybody want to guess? There's a basic flaw in that premise. What would it be? Well, there was they were separated to a degree. Okay. So let's just look at the church. Okay. And Myron had his hand up. The definition of the church. The definition of the church. Okay. <laughs> That's not what I was thinking. The basic flaw is the definition of the church is what you're saying. Well, the church, uh, yeah, you would be right. You would be right because it was a wrong model. That's right. But that's not what I was looking for. The basic flaw of this premise, because this flaw can exist in any kind of church model, not only that one. So we just take the church model aside and look at the basic flaw. Who is the ultimate authority? Is it the church or is it the word of God? A church that baptizes infants and tolerates and or promotes worldliness. Should we let that church decide what you do and can't do? <laughs> or is it the word of God? Who has the finally, uh, final authority? So the churchly pietists obeyed the word of God as far as they had permission to obey the word of God. That's the basic flaw of that one. Then there was another group that said we must obey the word of God. And since the church and its structure will not obey the word, we must leave this unbiblical structure. And they became known as the radical pietist. Okay? Churchly pietist, radical pietist. 
So what did the radicals do? They left the established authority structure. They said we can operate under God's authority. And their mantra mantra became beware of organized churches. In our experience, organized with organized churches, wherever there are organized churches, there is always a structure of authority. And wherever there is a structure of authority, there is they are always going to prevent the word of God from having the final authority. That was their theorizing and from their experience. So here it goes on yet. So the structure of the church, the tradition of the church, is always the enemy of God. The authority of the church is always the enemy of the moving of the spirit because the church always squashes it. So if you want to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want vibrant fellowship with other believers, you need to get away from organized churches. And when you get away, you got to make sure you don't organize. For the only way you can keep from going back into the same problem is to keep from getting organized. Organized churches are corrupt or they will eventually corrupt. So, obviously, you don't want to organize the church because you will eventually cause it to corrupt. Organized churches have legalistic tradition that can be discarded because organized churches in their structure of authority always have traditions which keep the word of God in check. The word or the spirit has never has free course because the structure always prevents it from having a free course. So therefore, we need to get away from all traditions. That is a radical pietist. Now, my experience. I was part of a Mennonite church. And I joined church. And I was dead. Dead, dead, dead. Baptized member of the Mennonite church. Then I experienced what became a specific emphasis of pietism... It was a conscious crisis conversion. (laughs) That's a word that is given. That is one thing that pietism emphasizes, and I think the word of God does too. Which means there came a point in my time, in my life, where I met Jesus Christ. Where I realized I was lost. I was actually lost for a long time. I knew I was lost for a long time, Caleb. I was lost for 12 years at least. And I knew it. And I knew I was headed for hell. But I also understood enough of the gospel when it was preached that there was a way and Jesus Christ died for my soul and I was saved. And I became a Christian, a living Christian, a born again Christian. That was so life changing. I am an on my way heaven to a believer when I was on my way to hell for 12 years to come to the place where I'm no longer fearing hell. You know what that does to a person. I also became 
a churchly pietist. I didn't know the term. But most of these six points I either practiced or believed in at that point. We got together in small groups. We had accountability. We believed in the priesthood of believers and on and on. But I was also under the influence of a Christian who was under the influence of a man called Bill Gothard. Some of you older ones will remember him. If you know anything about Bill, you will know that he taught people how to function under and in a structure of authority. That was a strong point of his teaching. So, we went into Lancaster to witness after we got permission from our minister to do so. We went to New York State to speak to a man that was bound in pornography after we got permission from the minister that we may do that. My friend that was counseling or uh, the one that I talked about is that, uh, under influence of this Christian lifted up the freedom that we had in our churchly system. He said, we are not forbidden to go preach. We're not forbidden to go witness. Um, we can function well inside this structure. That's what I was taught. So I was a churchly pietist. I'm not going to go through all the events and describe what all happened, but eventually I did leave that system. And then what did I become? I became a radical pietist, believe it or not. <clears throat> and church structure and church traditions became taboo. Not only did they serve no purpose, they were in fact a positive hindrance. And we became a non-denominational, non-traditional, born-again Christian, whatever that is. <laughs> That's what we were. Now, pietism is and was a movement. It was not a church. It was a movement. When it became a church model is when it began to fall short. Pietism, as a church movement, when it became the church, when it became the church model, reacted so intensely to the real errors of the established churches that it eventually minimized other important aspects of Christianity and structure. It was so focused on the heart of Christianity that it ignored or rejected some good structure that the churches had. Now, I want to bring this into context. What do you need to be a saved, victorious, overcoming Christian? What do you need to have what the Romans 7 Christian that I preached about in the other message, that Romans 7 Christian where he said, I, I want to do what's right, but I can't do it, and what I don't want to do, I, that I do. What was missing in that man? And it was the Spirit of God. And so... What do we need to have us to be 
a saved, victorious, overcoming Christian. We need the Holy Spirit of God. Who's going to deliver that wretched man? It is the Holy Spirit of God. And Romans 8, 2, I'm going to read a few verses here. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, now you could insert here what the traditions and standards and things that, that you had could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. The bottom line is this. If you have the Spirit of God and if you walk in the Spirit of God, you will not do earthly, carnal, sinful things. You will not live in defeat. You will live in victory. I'm thinking in pietistic terms now. So all of our emphasis needs to go into building people up in the faith, in encouraging them, discipling them, instructing them, build them up. If we put all our focus on there, you have everything you need. Don't put fences up. Don't put boundaries up. It won't help those who are not in the spirit and those in the spirit don't need them. In fact, we came from churches who did a lot of that. So we reject the whole thing. We go for the heart, and we are not going to depend on any crutch to accomplish any kind of right behavior. If it doesn't come from the heart, we don't want it anyway. Now I'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we're going to look here at a balancing scripture. That's what the purpose of this is, okay? The balancing scripture of what I was just saying the last couple paragraphs here. Widows in the church. It seemed to be a sizable group of widows in the early church. And they needed special attention. And it seemed that there were specific guidelines established in how to minister to them. Some were on a list of support and others were not. And to be on a list of support, you had to meet certain criteria. And it seems like some kind of commitment was required from a widow before she was put on a list. From looking at circumstantial evidence and looking at it, it seemed like that was the case. We're not quite sure what everything was going on here. But let's start reading here, starting at verse 9. Let a widow be taken into the number, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the man of one wife, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, 
For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And that seemed to be talking about the commitment that was asked of them before they were put on the list. And verse 13, And withal they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now who were these ladies, these widows? Were they heathen people? No, they were widows in the church. And by extension, they were born again, spirit-filled, walking in the spirit Christians. That's who they were. That's who we're talking about here. But they, in this verse 13, are going way wrong. Way wrong. Busybodies, idle, saying things which they shouldn't say. What can we do about this? We have these ladies who, who are in this condition. Paul, what should we do? Should we have more accountability? Should we have more teaching? Should we have more prayer meetings? Maybe we need a revival. What does Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say we should do? And he says, set up a standard. It's quiet in here. (laughs) Don't put these widows in a vulnerable position. Set up a boundary, an across-the-board boundary. What's the boundary? Don't put anybody on this list under 60 years of age. Now, if Timothy were like us, he might ask, why 60, Paul? Why not 50? Why did you pick an arbitrary age like 60? Why not 55 or 50 or 45? Where is the chapter and verse for you to recommend something like this? Don't you, Paul, have the confidence that the Spirit of God will keep those younger widows correct? Paul, if we set up standards, what is going to keep us from making more and more and more standards? Don't you remember the pharisaical background where you came from? Paul's directive, not under 60. Paul's rationale, if you do, you will set them up to temptation that they may not survive. The rationale. They learn, they learn, younger widows will learn, they will learn to be idle. And they're wandering about from house to house. It's something that you put them into that they may not survive. So, don't put them on the list. Do
Do this, I will therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You know, in my pietistic years, we made fun of people who set up arbitrary standards. And, uh, of course, the real classic ones is when you go back in the Old Testament, what the Pharisees did uh, about the Sabbath day laws. On the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to spit on the ground because you spit on the ground, you can make mud. Motor, mortar, and you make, can make mortar, you can make a brick, and you make a brick, you're working. So therefore, don't spit on the ground. And that's, that's, you know, and it is, it's sort of silly. But there are proper directives to be given that are not silly. They're needful. Like Paul does. In First um, Corinthians 7, Paul says plainly that it is best, he's taking this to the men, primarily to the men, best for a man not to touch a woman. It is best for a man to remain single. You spirit-filled, godly, walking in the spirit men, born again, loving God, it's best that you stay single. Just, that's how you can serve God. And he comes back. You know what, though? To avoid fornication, least man have his own wife, each wife have her own husband. Reality. Reality is reality. And in fact, don't Face reality and don't put yourselves in areas of temptation which you might not be able to survive. And don't even deprive each other for long times without consent from both. These guidelines are real for real Christians in real life. Now, is it a sin to be put on a list for widow's support under 60? Is it a sin issue? And we say no. It is not a sin issue. The, the, the standard, to be on a widow's list at 55, is you're not sinning if you're put on the list. That's what I'm saying. It's not a sin issue. But it is a very practical issue. It's a practical lifestyle issue. Because setting ourselves up for temptation can have enormous temporal and eternal consequences. So it is expected, and this is the argument I'm, I'm making, it is expected in reading the totality and tenor of Scripture that the church of God will address these issues and others in their own culture and environment. That is the expectation of the scripture evil communications corrupt good manners what the scripture says it doesn't matter if you are born again spirit filled walking in the spirit charismatically gifted person it is going to be true evil communication will corrupt good manners just know it and then Respond properly to it. And since we are a community of believers, 
and not only individuals. Some decisions in this area need to be made on a corporate level and not only on an individual level. There are two sides to this matter. One side is where your righteousness and standing with God is measured by your adherence to these practical guidelines and standards. That's the one side. So you are keeping these standards really well, and so your righteousness is measured by those standards. And that's wrong. The other side is when you over-spiritualize your walk with God and overemphasize the spiritual walk with God to the exclusion of practical and common sense reality. This leads to shipwreck just as well as the other does. Radical pietism as a movement has helped revive the church from dead orthodoxy. But when the movement became the church, the one error was replaced with the other. And I believe that is the error that threatens us as much as the other error does. When, when we are so keen on the heart that we cannot or will not require practical direction or safeguards, lest you become a Pharisee, we are in error. And we are vulnerable to the enemy. Here's the dilemma of some pastors, and I've heard them. The youth in our church, we have godly youth in our church. We have youth who love God, who love the lost. They have a heart for prayer. They are godly young people. Now, it is true that they are not where we would like them to be in practical areas. And they seem to be drifting even further. It is true that they don't seem to value the things and practices they were raised with. That is true. But we will not require them to change and conform lest we stamp out their focus on God and his will for their life. We don't want to shift their focus from their love of God and their love for souls, so therefore we will not require them to look at these things, lest we do that. So we will pray for revival. We will instruct. We will encourage. But we will not establish standards. We will not have requirements. We will not get in the way of the Spirit of God. We will not be like those pastors who only care how you look and act and smell. And that's wrong, too, to just care about that. So what will you and so you will not do what the Apostle Paul did. Set up a boundary and said, this is the reason for it. We have probably overreacted to situations or pastors real or perceived whom we thought were either less spiritual than we are or outright Pharisees. 
So what's the title of this message? Salvation. Pietistic, or rather, pietist and practical. We need both. We really, really need both. That is my plea this morning. Pietist, being born again by the Spirit of God, living a reverent and virtuous life with that feeling of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, feeling that freshness, that mystical oneness with the Lord that you can't explain. That's the basic essence of Christianity. And it is. The most important thing in all Christianity is that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that you feel it in your heart and that you live it out every day. Practical. Recognize that there is a God-given order and structure in all society, including the church. Recognize that we are vulnerable to many dangers. And this verse, if any man thinks he standeth, take heed lest he fall. If you think you are so spiritual you don't need any standards, take heed. Or if a church thinks that we don't need that. Take heed. We may not be as spiritual as we think we are. What we think is faith may actually be pride. And I can speak from experience because that's been my experience. So allow structure and guideline to protect you and even, and even to shape you. You say, are you only shaped by the Spirit of God? Huh. We're also people. We live in a real world. We are shaped by the environment and the things that we're asked to do. Can the great truths and realities of the life in the spirit be abused? Yes, it's done in this way and many other ways that I did not even mention. We need each other and we need to be in the word. We need... The chapter and verse sections, and then we also need to observe the circumstantial evidence, lest we go out of balance. The Methodist movement was very pietistic in its heart. And they, there was a mixture of churchly pietism and radical pietism in that whole thing there. But they developed their little societies. There was a reform movement, there was a revival movement. The, the, the main church was dead. The, it was exactly what I was saying here, and the Methodist movement started. But they got their very name by their church structure. They had methods of doing things. They had lots of structure. In fact, they were very practical. One serious regret that John Wesley had near the end of his life is that he did not extend those practical methods and instructions that they had, and they had a long list, over into clothing and entire. By the end of his life, he saw a drift occurring in many of the societies that grieved him. And he said we should have required a more practical standard of dress. The Moravians, they were probably the most pietistics of all movements. But I don't believe 
any of us would fit the standard to get into their society. And yet, they were a powerful people of God with a real heart and missions and prayer. The strictness of their society did not squelch the spirit of God. In fact, it freed them to do the work of God. So, the general sense that we have many from our teaching and background from our pietistic culture is that practical direction and standards are second best. If we would be having revival, if we would really consistently be walking in the spirit, we would not need them. But since we're not experiencing that anymore, now we have to go to second best. We have to get some practical things of expectation. I propose, seeing from the direct and circumstantial evidence from the scripture, the evidence from history and the reality of our present experience, that that is truth out of balance. Accepting guidelines is not a necessary evil. It is actually part of God's plan. How it's done is very important. It truly is. But the fact that it is done is not the issue. It is unbiblical not to do it. So we as a congregation, I propose that by God's grace, we are going to focus on the new birth we're going to focus on walking in the spirit and in instruction and in discipleship. But we're also going to avail ourselves to practical guidelines and positions. And we're going to do it. And here's the key. We're going to do it unapologetically. It's not second best. It is God's will. And we will attempt to walk in that. And I could use a few stories, but I think we'll close at this. Why don't we just, could we, could we kneel for prayer this morning? If you're able to, let's kneel for prayer. Lord, as we come before you at the close of this service, as we have looked into your word and we have tried, Lord, to... Um, Understand your heart and how you both want to bless us and you want to bless us with your spirit and you also want to bless us to keep us from danger. Your heart toward us, Lord, is all a blessing and all a purpose, all to bring glory to you. It is your purpose to see us go through and our children and the souls that come in and that, that are one to your kingdom that we together would be victorious and come together around your throne. And Lord, it is your purpose to also alert us of the shipwrecks and the dangers and the errors on our way. 
So, Lord, as we, um, we close this service, I pray you be with each one of us. Give us, Lord, I pray, your spirit, your understanding to move forward in our life in this week, to be a blessing to others, and to walk in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.